Now, we want you to turn to Matthew uh, chapter 5, and uh, we are uh, coming to a, um, what I want to call a transition point in our study in uh, uh, the uh, matter of discipleship, for we are soon to be completing uh, this study and discipleship in the Gospels from the standpoint of the training of the disciples and so on. Then we're going to go on and study discipleship in the book of Acts in a, uh, a portion of this series. And then we're going to talk about some practical applications of discipleship, uh, uh, specifically how you might uh, do certain things with certain people in order to bring them uh, to a place of being real disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are some things that are in store for us. And so uh, we've been studying since uh, fall uh, on this whole subject of discipleship, and it's, uh, it's a vitally important subject. And uh, we want to learn what we can now from the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly from the Beatitudes, uh, for uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, seeing the multitudes, sat down and taught his disciples. Uh, there were a great many people that were onlookers, uh, but uh, they, uh, the main thrust of this ministry now would be specifically to the disciples. Now, let me say, uh, just uh, by way of introduction and review from last time, that uh, in, uh, in the Ten Commandments we have the first four that speak of a vertical relationship, man to God. And the last six of the Ten Commandments speak of a horizontal relationship, man to man. And uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Christ gave his Beatitudes, he also divided it in these two levels, only he divided it here evenly. There are four of the Beatitudes that speak of a vertical relationship, and there are four that speak of a horizontal relationship. The four, first four are the vertical relationship, the second four are the horizontal relationship. And we talked about the word makarios, the idea of, of a special state of bliss uh, that the Greeks thought of as being uh, in reference to their gods, in reference to a person who had entered into the bliss of uh, eternity uh, because they were unaffected by circumstance. And basically, the etymology of the word uh, indicates that, that it means one who lives above his circumstances. It's not merely a matter of joy, uh, though it includes the idea of joy, and it is that which is un, uh, undiminished by uh, earthly sorrows or earthly pressures or earthly problems or anything of that sort. And so when Christ used that word here, um, it was a rather unusual thing as far as the disciples were concerned to say that they could enjoy this kind of bliss here upon earth rather than having to wait until they died. And so then he began to talk to them, saying, Blessed, Makarios, are the poor in spirit. Now, the idea of being poor in spirit means that a person is destitute. He is destitute so that he must depend upon resources that are beyond his own ability. A person who is bankrupt has to have help. People who don't have a job 
have to be on welfare. You don't, you aren't able to feed and clothe your family, so therefore you have to depend upon someone else's resources. And when the believer in Jesus Christ comes to the place where he realizes his utter bankruptcy of soul, then he realizes that he is totally dependent upon the Father's resources. God has provided abundantly for us, but we, in order to appropriate those things, we have to declare bankruptcy. We have to say, I can't make it on my own. I am totally dependent upon God's provision for me. And so therefore, the poor in spirit, when they are poor in spirit, when they realize that, that they have nothing to offer God, when they are, as we put it last week, anti-pride, when they come to that place where they're anti-pride, then, of course, they, have a right, they enter into a right relationship with God, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the next word has to do with hating anything that would keep us from God. Hating what would keep us from God. Hating what would keep us from God. Now, the fascinating thing about this is that it simply says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the idea of mourning here primarily has in view a mourning for, our, uh, for the, the thing that keeps us from the Lord, the thing that, that uh, detracts from a relationship with him. That is an attitude that we must never we must never lose in our Christian experience. We have to learn to be mourners, good mourners. Oh, that doesn't mean we walk around a long face and we groan and moan and all of that. That's not what it means at all. But rather, it has in view the idea of mourning over sin. Now, each one of these, um, we, could, we could spend, uh, you know, hours and hours. I, I have a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great big thick one, on the Sermon on the Mount. And he spends about uh, 200 pages on these Beatitudes alone. And uh, there's so much rich teaching that can come. And we're sort of just giving you the, the, the uh, conclusion rather than going into great detail just for the sake of moving along in our study. But we need to come to that place where we hate anything that would keep us from God. And then the, the next one is blessed are the meek. The word meek is the word that we often see uh, in Scripture, uh, and we see it usually translated meek. Uh, the word actually is the word prates. Um, prates is defined as being an inwrought grace of the soul, whereby a person reckons that God's dealings with him are good. And therefore, he accepts them without disputing or resisting. That's Bishop Trench's um, little definition of this word. What it basically is saying, that it's putting into practice Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Now, on the basis of the strength of that verse, no matter what takes place in our life, we know that God has allowed it for a purpose. If there's sin in our life, then we know that God has allowed it to come into our life for discipline. If there's no sin in our life, then we know that God has designed this for our blessing. 
and there's just no other way around it. Now you go out there tonight in that parking lot and you find out all four tires all four tires on your car is flat, there's no reason to cuss. See? You might feel like it. But you see, because of this meekness, which is part of the fruit of the Spirit, you look at that and you say, wow, you know, the Lord must really have some lessons to teach me. There must be something. He wouldn't have allowed something this bad to happen if it wasn't for a good purpose. He has a reason. And so therefore, you can accept it without disputing or resisting. Now, we struggle with this. We all do. Face it, none of us is perfect in this regard. Jesus Christ was. And of course, that meek attitude is, uh, let me just show you, over in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, or 2, chapter 2. He's talking here about relationships and talking about suffering and all of that. And about verse 18, he begins to talk to the servant. And uh, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only the good and gentle, but also to the perverse. It's kind of hard to accept a boss that really is out to lunch um, in the uh, uh, mental sense uh, and, and accept that as from God. Some of you got bosses like that, I can tell by the little snicker on your face right now, see? I know. You, you, you've got situations that are tough. You've got a perverse boss. He's a lousy guy to work for. He's not fair. He doesn't pay you enough. He doesn't understand you. He doesn't love you and all this stuff. And you've got a real problem. But now the question is, are you willing to work for him as unto the Lord because God tells you you're supposed to? Then it says, For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. In other words, if you're doing what's right and you're suffering for it, that's something to praise God about. Then it says, For what glory is it if you're buffeted for your faults? Make absolutely sure that you're not being clobbered by your boss because you're a poor employee. Don't say you're suffering for Jesus' sake in a case like that. I had a guy come into my office and uh, uh, some time ago, and he said he'd been fired from his job. He was really desperate and all the rest of it. And I talked with him a little bit, found out that the guy had been fired from his job because of absenteeism. Uh, he just didn't always feel like getting up in the morning and going to work. And he said, you know, I guess I was kind of spasmodic. I kind of lost my heart for the job and so on and so forth. And, and he's claiming to be a Christian and claiming that, you know, he needs his help. And I turned him to this passage of Scripture. And I said, if you suffer, if you're buffeted for your faults and you take it patiently, then what in the world uh, do you have to gloat about? You're only getting what you, what you earned, what you deserved. But notice, when you do well and suffer for it, and you take that patiently, you show up on time every day, you do your work well, and the boss says, look, we don't need you anymore, and he dumps you after 20 years working for the company. And you take that patiently, then it says, this is acceptable. Charis, it is grace. That's grace. That's the grace of God working through you to give you that kind of an attitude in that kind of trial. Now, about this time, everybody needs a little bit of encouragement. So we have a little parenthetical portion here talking about how Christ did in similar situation. For even hereunto are ye called, suffering. 
because Christ also suffered for us on our behalf and for our benefit, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, again, don't misunderstand that following in the steps of Christ. It means that you have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You're not copying his conduct in the sense of walking, putting your foot where his foot walked. Uh, that's not the idea. Following in his steps mean that you have the kind of attitude that he had when he suffered. All right? Now notice his meek attitude. Remember the definition of meekness. He just simply was relaxed, realizing that God had brought it into his life and that God was going to work it out. Now look how it works out in practical relationship. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. He said, Father, I commit myself to you. You're in charge of this. Then, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, it gives us a little picture of the benefit of Christ reacting to that suffering in that way. And then it says in chapter 3, In the same manner, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may be without the word, won by the behavior of the wives, while they behold your chaste conduct, coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of the braiding of hair, or the wearing of gold, putting on of apparel, let it be the hidden person of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of what? A meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. Then verse 7, in like manner ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge. Again, in the, the same kind of an attitude, dwell with them. Finally, all of you be of one mind. What kind of mind? The mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ. Having compassion, sympathy, one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Don't render evil for evil, railing for railing, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you should inherit a blessing, and so on. You see, what the, what the passage is demonstrating is this, this concept of meekness. God wants us, as a part of the fruit of the Spirit, to have this in our life. All right? So we now have two things. Anti-pride. Secondly, hate that which keeps us from God. Thirdly, there is no need to react. That's the third thing. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. That's good news, isn't it? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You do not have to react to problems that come into your life. Why? Because you have a relationship with the living God. He's not going to allow anything to come into your life but what it has purpose. And that purpose being realized will work the thing through in building character in you. And therefore, we know that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Let's never forget that the potter still has the clay on the potter's wheel. And he is molding you. A missionary... Uh, returned from the field who had suffered a great deal on the field, shared with me early in my ministry. He said, uh, Pastor, do you realize that when a potter works with the clay, the clay takes its shape as he works on the inside, not as he works on the outside? And then he said this, he said, God will do far more in you in the ministry than he will ever do through you. 
You hear that? He'll do far more in you than he'll ever do through you. We've got the idea that God's big goal is to use us to reach the world for Christ. You know what God's goal is? God's goal is to make us men and women of God. The world will be reached that way. But it's not that he finds a talented young man with debonair ability. And he picks him because he has all of these talents. And now he says, boy, there is a guy that I can use. Oh, no. Man looks on the outward appearance. That's Saul. The Lord looks at the heart. That's David. God was able to mold David from the inside. And he was able to use him. Saul washed out. Saul was head and shoulders above his brother. David was just a little shepherd boy. But God was able to use him. You know, uh, Ian Thomas uses this illustration. It's, a, it's just beautiful, and some of you probably have heard me use it before, but he talks about Moses and the burning bush. He talks about the fact that Moses spent 40 years becoming something, somebody I guess it wasn't Ian Thomas that said this, but I'll ad-lib here a little bit, that uh, Moses spent 40 years becoming somebody, and then he spent 40 years becoming a nobody, and then he spent 40 years finding out what God could do in using a nobody. But you see, he comes after 40 years in the backside of the desert. He comes and he sees a burning bush. Now, he realizes that that bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. And he says to himself, hey, you know, I'm not like that bush. <laughs> no way. Because I, uh, I had a flash of attempting to do something for God, and I burned up in just one flash. Slew the Egyptian, you know, and all that. Boy, he was going to save Israel. And he had to flee. Now he's on the backside of the desert, learning to be a nobody. And he looks at that bush and he says, man, that's spectacular. Because that's just the opposite of what I am. Why, I was a glow and a flame with, with my love for Jehovah. And now, you say, I'm all burned out. I'm going to have to draw aside and take a look at this. And you know, when he draws near, God says, take your shoes off. For the ground you're walking on is holy ground. He takes his shoes off. He stands there and God says to him something like this. If we read into the story between the lines, he says, Moses, you see that bush over there? Moses, you're not like that bush. Why, Moses, you burned up in just one fell swoop, and that bush is, being, is burning, it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. But Moses, there is nothing spectacular about the bush. Why, I could have used this bush... This bush, this bush, I could have used any of these bushes. Any old bush would do. The difference is God is in the bush. That's the difference. You see, Moses learned that when God was in Moses, directing him, that he had power. But when Moses was running the show, it was pitiful. Now, you see, we need to learn this spirit of meekness in our relationship with God so that we have power in our lives, 
so that it is God who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's not us doing it in ourselves. When we do things in ourselves, we are putting ourselves in great jeopardy because we are liable to be hurt. We're liable to be hurt. You see this just a little bit in the life of Samuel, where Samuel's trying his best to show the people that they shouldn't have a king. And finally, they, you know, God says, hey, they have not rejected you, Samuel. This isn't a personal thing between you and them. They rejected me. Christ had the same thing with his disciples. He said, when they persecute you, remember, they're not persecuting you. They're persecuting me. It's just that you happen to be handy. They can't get at me. So they take it out on you. Now, when will we ever learn that lesson? That the things that happen where people put pressure upon us and persecute us and all of those things, that those things God is using to, if you please, set us on fire for him, to work in us. Because he'll do far more in us than he'll ever do through us. Let him do his work in you. And as you do, then his glory will be manifest. So there's no need to react. I don't care what happens to you tonight, tomorrow, or next week, or whatever. There's no need to react. And though sometimes you will react, remember, that is not meekness. Let him develop and produce the quality of meekness in your life. Then, number four, we want to walk according to a divine standard. We want our life to be put up against the plumb line of God. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Verse 6. For they shall be filled. Walking according to God's standard, a divine standard, letting the qualities of Christ's likeness come into our life. Now think in terms of Jesus Christ again, using that example. Christ knew no sin. That is pure righteousness. God takes the righteousness of Christ, credits it to your account, so that positionally you are righteous. Do you know, since you became a Christian, did not suddenly make you totally righteous, correct? No. Any more than when you became a Christian, you no longer got hungry at the meals, of the meals at, at the table. You know, just because you are spiritual doesn't mean you don't, never have to eat. Your body still craves food. We have to come to the place in our life and experience where we desire and long and hunger for our lives to be the approximate equivalent to our position. So that we will be what God says we are. You see, because he says you're a saint. It's not that you are going to be a saint. A saint is not a dead Christian. You are a saint. It has to do with your position. Same word for holy, sanctify, and saint. All the same word, hagias. Hagias 
is simply to be set apart. And you are a saint. You're set apart for God's special sacred service, all right? But you see, there are a lot of times you continue to live for yourself. That, the scripture calls, unrighteousness. There are two areas of unrighteousness that need to be mentioned. One is direct disobedience. And the scripture makes clear that when you are guilty of that, that you grieve the Spirit of God. The other side of the coin is this, that when you try to do things in your own righteousness, remember Isaiah said, all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags, putrefying rags that they used to take off, the, take off from the sores of a leper. That's what a filthy rag is, all right? And that's what your righteousness is like. And the scripture says that when you try to put, a, put forth your own righteousness in trying to please God, then that is the same as quenching the Spirit. One side of our old sin nature, we, we attempt to do our thing and do those things that are wrong. That's the weakness of the old sin nature. On the other side of the old sin nature, we have a tendency to want and try to impress God with things we do right. And that's the strength of the old sin nature, but it's still produced from the old sin nature and God can't accept it at all. On one side, we grieve the Spirit of God when we deliberately sin. On the other side, we quench the Spirit of God when we fail to live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have to be willing to put aside our own righteousness and reach out and hunger and long for the righteousness which is by faith. That's the righteousness that we're talking about here. Do you hunger and thirst after that right standard of conduct and putting your life in line with it? Now, you see, we have four things, all of which relate to our vertical relationship. This has nothing to do, basically, with interpersonal relationships at all. It has to do entirely with our relationship with God. There are overflow and spilling over that happens with these four relationships. Uh, that, uh, for instance, if you're anti-pride, then you'll, you'll exhibit humility toward others, as we'll see in a moment. And if you hate that which, uh, which keeps you from, uh, from God, then your conduct will be such that it will be honest and pure and right. And that affects your relationships with other people. When you, uh, when you don't react in any, any given situation, naturally that'll have an impact. It'll, it'll give you the ability to be a peacemaker rather than to be a troublemaker. When you walk according to a divine standard, guess what? As far as your interpersonal relationships are concerned, you will not be popular. You'll be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And it will be a joy to realize that indeed you are being persecuted because of a correct standard. And when we were in uh, in Chicago, uh, uh, one uh, the Friday night meeting, which was at Moody Church, um, Dr. Criswell spoke on the judgments. But Dr. McGee and Dr. Strauss had made a couple of pretty strong statements concerning the homosexual movement. Uh, in the previous part of the week. And so Friday night was the chance with 4,000 some odd people there, you know. And so the, the uh, gay rights people were marching up and down the street. 
calling out all kinds of things and you know the whole thing and they had big banners saying we're Christian and gay and all of this kind of thing now, that's mild persecution but it's persecution alright but you know that didn't bother me at all I'm sure it didn't bother the speakers you know why because they were being persecuted in this mild way for righteousness sake all right. So you see, these four relationships have to do primarily with a vertical relationship, but they have a spill over into a horizontal relationship, our relationships with others. And that's precisely what happens in the next four Beatitudes. Notice, by contrast, verses 7 through 10, it says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And incidentally, then this is a continuation of it. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. All right, there are your, your four horizontal relationships. Now let's put it this way so you get, the, you get the point. Let's make it number one. Number one, and we'll put a little arrow here and show a vertical relationship. And then we'll put down AP for anti-pride, all right? Now we'll draw a line over. And now we'll have a horizontal relationship. And we will say here that you become compassionate. You become a healing agent. What does it say? Blessed are the merciful. The merciful are the compassionate ones. When you realize your own utter bankruptcy, then how do you look at other people? You know, it is the pride attitude that causes people to look down their nose at other people. It's when we think we are something that we begin to think someone else is less. When we realize that we are bankrupt and we look across and we see someone else who is bankrupt, we say, hey, we're bedfellows. We're all in the same boat. We've all got a pro problem that has to be met by resources beyond our ability. Someone has said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. See what he's saying? There, are, there is no rank when you come to Christ. There is no rich. There is no poor. There is no bond. There is no free. There is no male. There is no female. There is nothing except the fact that we are people who are utterly bankrupt and utterly dependent upon God. It's the only way of salvation. You have to come to that place in your life where you reach out empty hands of faith and say, Lord, I have nothing. As the song says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I've got nothing else to offer except empty hands saying, please help. And so therefore, it's, there's never any class distinction. This is one of the hardest things that hit the ancient world. Because you see, there were extreme class conditions in those days. There were slaves. There were masters. Women were ill-treated. 
and to suddenly have this revolutionary concept that people could could walk out of that kind of a society, walk into the door, and have love one for another. Where a man could be rich or poor, it made no difference. He could be poorly dressed, he could be wealthy and richly dressed, and it would make no difference. There was love and compassion and tenderness and mercy, and there was such a healing agent in the church. And if some of you, a few weeks ago, we were discussing this in ladies' class, that was the thing that destroyed slavery in the ancient world. They absolutely could not live with it because they had masters who loved their slaves and slaves who loved their masters. And that just destroys class distinctions. Men who were long-standing men in the community became Christians. And, you know, Sunday dinner rolled around. The pastor of their church was their slave. And they would go and they'd say, hey, look, let's have dinner together today. And they would be seen in public walking away from the church, which then was a house, of course. And they'd sit down and they'd share their table together. Monday morning, it was still boss-employee, but it was a totally different relationship. No longer could, could the man beat his slave. He couldn't bring himself to that. I mean, you know, it's tough to beat your pastor, you know. <laughs> Though some maybe would like to from time to time. I don't know. But you see what I mean? And so it, it, all of a sudden... They began to quit buying and selling slaves, and it ruined the slave market. And before long, it was finished. It was wiped out. See, that's why the scripture does not speak against slavery. Because it is not God's purpose to change society by imposing rules on society. God wants to change the individual because then society is changed. I was going to save this till the next part of this uh, thing, but I won't get to it tonight, so I'll say it right now because it's in my mind. In England, when socialism began to creep into, into England, the socialist was talking with a Christian one day, and he, he said, socialism is good for England. He said, why, do you see that man over there? Why, socialism put a new suit on that man. And the Christian man said, oh yes, that may be true. But Christianity put a new man in the suit. You see, God's methodology of changing society is not the methodology of imposing standards on society which they have no ability to keep. His, he worked from the inside out. And we have a maximum number of believers who are truly where they ought to be biblically, then the society of the country will change radically in keeping with those individuals. I don't mean it will ultimately become a Christian society. That's very doubtful. There are too many that will reject the truth. But it cannot remain the same. Do you realize that, that the Christian in our world today, in our country today, that the number of Christians that we have has really prevented this country from having many of the problems other countries have had. Christians serve, in a, to a great degree, uh, as a preservative. You realize that in 1 Corinthians 7, it makes clear that miniature, you can understand it if we put it down in miniature a little bit. So let's scale it down just a little. In 1 Corinthians 7, it says that if there's a believer in the home, 
Husband's a believer, the wife is not. Uh, the, the wife uh, is and the husband is not. Whatever. If there's a believer in the home, that that home is sanctified hagias. Saint, sanctified, holy. All the same word. The believer in that home sets the home apart and God has a special interest in that home. You take one Christian home, another Christian home, another and another and another in a community. A church like ours with a witness and a testimony, other churches that are also proclaiming the truth and living by a biblical standard, it will grossly affect the society in which we live. It's got to have a dramatic effect upon it. You take that community with a maximum number of believers in it and put it in a country and there will be Again, the special interest of God upon that country because of a maximum number of believers. Now, the big problem we have is that the, that the believer who has a biblical standard is becoming less and less in the United States of America. And you dare not, as a Christian, take for granted the benefits that we have experienced. You better enjoy them now because you may not enjoy them much longer at the rate things are going. One of the reasons that it's deteriorating is because Christians are compromising. They're compromising, and as a result, you know, the, there's no standard. If the Bible's not the standard, what kind of a standard do we have? All right, now, the Christian then becomes a compassionate healing agent. Blessed are the merciful. You become merciful when you are anti-pride because when you see others you realize you're all in the same bankrupt state all desperately in need of God and uh, the, the story is told of Billy Sunday walking down the streets of a city and uh, he was walking with a man who was you know, rather sophisticated and the man saw a drunk laying in the gutter filthy and you know just obviously dead drunk and uh, he kind of pulled his pharisaical robes around him a little bit, and he said, isn't that just awful? And looked over at Billy Sunday, and Billy Sunday had great big tears coming down his face. And he said, all I can say is except for the grace of God, that would be me. Blessed are the merciful. You come to Galatians chapter 6 and you see these words. If a brother be overtaken in a fault, ye that are spiritual, restore such an one, how? In a spirit of meekness. Remember that word. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Who then is qualified to restore a fallen brother? One who realizes that given the same circumstances, he probably would have fallen too. He's the one that's qualified. Not the guy who's goody-goody and says, oh, that would never happen to me. <laughs> that person is disqualified. The person who's qualified is, if you please, the merciful. He's anti-pride. 
he realizes it could have been him. And therefore he is qualified to seek to, and the word for restore there is to bring back the bone that is broken so it will knit and heal. All right? That's number one. Number two, again, vertical relationship is you hate what keeps you from God. I don't know how to make that in abbreviated form, put a slash there. Horizontal? Well, what does it say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. That has to do with honesty, honest, right motives. Honest, right motives. You see, when you hate anything that would keep you from God in your vertical relationship, your horizontal relationship then keeps you living in accordance with that which is pure and right, right motives and honest dealings with people simply because you don't want any hindrance to come between you and the Lord. And therefore you keep the way clear in your relationships with people as well. We need to learn that. There are a lot of people who have the foggy idea that they can be right with God and not right with other people. It just doesn't work that way. God makes it very clear that the two go hand in hand. And therefore, you have to maintain an honesty and live honestly in the sight of all men. You are to do those things that are right, those things that are honorable in your relationships with other individuals. And then, the third thing is this. Vertically, what do we have? We have the idea of us not reacting, the meekness. No reaction. Horizontally, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Peace. In the midst of turmoil, that's exactly what will happen when an individual has things squared in his react so that there's no reaction to anything God brings into his life. Well, it's, it's a fascinating story. Uh, let's look at it just a second. Uh, second Samuel have to be about uh, chapter 7. Uh, excuse me, 17. 16. Let's try 16, all right? Second Samuel chapter 16 and uh, verse 5. When King David came to uh, Hurim, behold, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came forth and cursed continually as he came. Now, that must have been fun. Uh, David was... Uh, shut out from his own palace because Absalom, his son, had usurped the throne. Uh, and as a result, uh, 
you know, here he was uh, uh, in exile, and uh, he's walking along one day, and here this guy comes out and curses him. And he cast stones at David. I didn't just curse him, he cast stones at him. And at all of the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men that were his right hand and on his left. And thus said Shimei, when he cursed, Come out, come out, thou bloody man and thou worthless fellow. That wasn't a very nice thing to say to the king. He cursing him. Come out, come out, you bloody man, no worthless fellow. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord had delivered the kingdom unto the, uh, the hand of Absalom thy son. You got what you deserved, in other words. Behold, thou art in thy mischief, taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. All of this is happening to you just because it's all your fault, David. Now, was it David's fault? Uh, yes, to some degree, remember? But I want, to, I want you to catch something, all right? If you don't learn anything else tonight, learn this, will you? When an individual sins, God brings into his life discipline. The minute the individual turns back to the Lord, the discipline changes from a curse to a blessing. You know what I said? Let me illustrate it. A guy, I mentioned Sunday morning, uh, a guy gets in an automobile accident. He loses his leg as a result of the automobile accident. And he was out of the will of God at the time. The automobile accident came as discipline. as a part of the curse. It came upon him because he reaped what he sowed. All right? But he gets right with God. Now he gets right with God and his, his loss of leg is no longer given to him for discipline. But God doesn't grow another leg. No, no. Now he uses him with his one leg and brings even the loss of that leg as a blessing, perhaps as an opportunity to share with others the meaning of the discipline of God in his life and what it has done for him. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. It was given to him for blessing. All right? Now, that's the principle. David recognizes, first of all, that, that it was his fault that he was having problems in his family, but he also realized he was right with God. And therefore, what was coming to him in the form of a curse was really to him a blessing. Now, notice what it says. Then said Abishai, the son of Zerai, unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. That's about the way most of us would react, you see. It's about time we get rid of this guy. That's one way to shut him up, is take off his head. And the king said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zerah? So let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Who shall then say, Why hast thou done so? Who am I to question what God has done? Did he react? Did he? No. Is that meekness? Yes. Who am I to question it? And David said to Abishai, now what's David doing here? He's, he's a peacemaker, isn't he? This guy's got larceny in his heart. He's ready to take the guy out. He, get, let me get his head. You know, he's going to slash him. And what does he do? He said, no. Now, remember, if I can flip back just a second. Remember, Christ had this kind of attitude, right? Was Christ a peacemaker? How about at the Garden of Gethsemane? Judas comes up and kisses him. Christ calls him a friend, remember? He didn't have to react. He knew that he was going to the cross, he was going to die, and all the rest of it, but he didn't react. 
So Peter whips out his sword, and off goes Malchus's ear. And there are a lot of people, you know, that say Peter was just a poor swordsman, and he got all excited, and he missed him. He intended to split him down the middle. I don't believe that was true at all. I think he was going to slice him up piece by piece, one ear, then the other ear, then the nose, and, you know, he was going to take him apart. You know, he wanted to make sure he did a thorough job of it, make mincemeat out of the guy. That was his goal. That was what he was going to do. What Christ do? Put your sword away. Put your sword away. He healed the high priest's servant's ear and went to the cross. He was a peacemaker. Now David's a peacemaker. He said, who am I? Tell God who could curse me and who shouldn't. It's all a little blessing anyway. Because all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the call according to his purpose. Do you get the principle? All right. Then notice what he says. David said, to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came forth out of my own body seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjamite, Benjamite do it? Let him alone, and let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction, and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. The Lord knows my heart. And as a result, the Lord may just have special mercy on me because this guy is being so rough on me. Why? Another principle. David didn't know it biblically, but he apparently knew it intuitively. And that is, there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will never allow you to be tested above that you are able, but will with the testing make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Here is adding insult to injury. And David said, Hey, God knows how much I can take. If it ever comes to the point where I am at the breaking point, God's going to relieve me. And I know that. I don't have to wonder. And so he says, the Lord may requite me for good, for he's cursing this day. And then David went on with his, with his men and went about his business. Now, you see, when you have an attitude of no reaction, no retaliation, an attitude of meekness, then you become a peacemaker. And the scripture says that we are, and inasmuch as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. That doesn't mean, then, that you're going to have peace with all men. It just says that make sure that any lack of peace doesn't originate with you. When they retaliate, or I should say when they persecute, you do not retaliate. So therefore, you are a peacemaker. If, on the other hand, when they do something, you think, well, I, I've put up with this long enough, and you retaliate, then you're being disobedient to Scripture. The meek spirit accepts even that as from God. That's a very difficult thing, you know. Uh, let's go back to this boss-employee situation, all right? You've got a boss that's really putting pressure on you. He's really causing problems, you know, and you're just about ready to go out of your mind because you've got all of this pressure. Now, of course, there are ways that God can direct. He can get you fired, for one thing, you know, which takes the pressure off and puts some other pressure on you. But in a situation like that, you don't want to run from it because that's reaction. Rather, you want to rest in the Lord in the midst of it. And you may have some alternatives that are perfectly legitimate channels without uh, usurping authority or anything like that. Those are things that you can possibly explore. But you don't run from the situation. 
and you become a peacemaker. Some of you heard the story of uh, Dr. Brandt and how he got involved in counseling ministry. He was an engineer, and uh, they had an office where the boss yelled at everybody, and everybody reacted. And he was a Christian, but he reacted too. And all the boss would say, Brandt, come here! And Brandt would go and say, what do you want? You know, and that was the way the office was run. You know, you, some of you got an office like that. I, I can tell. And uh, you know, this was all the time, and everybody just was uptight. And one day, Dr. Brandt just decided this is insanity. I'm getting ulcers, and there must be something better. And so he, he decided, rather than just quit the job and go somewhere else, that he would learn how to respond like a Christian, with a meek spirit. So the boss would come out and he'd, Brant, come here! He'd say, yes, sir, what can I do for you? And the boss would. So the next time he'd say, Brant, come here. He'd come in and say, yes, sir, what can I do for you? The boss would come out next time, uh, Mr. Brant, could I see you for a moment? Meanwhile, you know, he'd come out five minutes later and say, Jones, come here! And Jones would say, what do you want? You know? But the other employees began to notice, hey, the only guy the boss is nice to is Brandt. What's he got going for him? And Dr. Brandt began to counsel other people in the office. And he brought about peace in the office because he led some of these guys to the Lord, taught them how to react like a Christian. And the boss saw this. And so the boss said, hey, Brandt, look, you're, what you're doing is a good work. Keep it up. Well, you take all the time you need to talk to these guys because we're much more production and everything else. And uh, it was so successful in that plant that Henry Brandt decided to go back to school and go full-time into the area of counseling because he saw what a need there was for someone teaching the Word of God from a counseling viewpoint. The result was that, you know, he today is a, is a leading um, area in the, in the uh, leading uh, uh, person in the area of Christian counseling and has been greatly used of God. It's just exciting to see what's happened. But you see, you've got situations like that. Those are real life-death struggles that you face. But you can be the peacemaker. Where in the world did that time go? We must have gotten started late. Time's gone. we got one more to go. Let me just give it to you very quickly, and then we'll, we'll, we've got to give a further application. I don't want to leave you hanging on this one thing. Vertical relationship is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And we'll come back to this, but horizontal relationship, rejoice when you're persecuted for living by that right standard. That's the picture. You see how those two things just parallel and dovetail? The Lord Jesus Christ was giving us a full scope of what could happen when Christians began to live according to his way. Let's bow, shall we, for a moment of prayer? Why don't you right now, just in this closing moment, just simply rest in the faithfulness of God, trust him, you can experience makarios. You can experience the joy of a life lived above the circumstances and pressures of life. Yield to God in those areas 
of anti-pride, of hating anything that would keep you from God, of not reacting, the meek spirit, and finally hungering and thirsting after God's way of doing things, after the right standard. And when you do, the horizontal relationships have a way of taking care of themselves. Father, so often we find that there is strife among people. We know that that is not the disease, that's simply the symptom. That the real disease, the crux of the problem, the root of the problem, is in hostility that we have toward you and what you've allowed to come into our life. Help us, Lord, to not retaliate, but to bear meekly those things that come into our life. Help us, Lord, to learn to simply rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and to simply say, it is enough for me that Jesus died and that he died for me. Grant that we may go from here tonight just thrilled with the insights that you have given us from your word and help us as a result to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you.